Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today on May 23rd, 2023, we're going to be talking about theories of the causes of and solutions to inflation or potential ones. Um, I'm delighted to have John Cochran on the podcast. He's a renowned economist and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He is a 2023 winner of the Bradley Prize. Um, They just released their speeches online. So you should go check his out. It's great. Um, And he writes a popular blog called The Grumpy Economist. He's also a former professor of economics and finance at the University of Chicago, where he was the editor of the GP, the JPE, the Journal of Political Economy. I feel like in my head, I say it as an acronym and then I've never pronounced it out loud. Um, So he's also the author of a recent book called The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level. So thank you for all the work that you've done. And thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here. So before we get started, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Uh, Can I give you two? (laughs) Yeah. As your listeners are soon about to find out, I'm not very good at short answers to uh, any questions. I'm I'm tempted to, you know, give the obvious political one. Um, Most people when they're young, and especially these days, don't have an appreciation of the the history, the institutions, um, the, the, the wonderful and delicate uh, society that we live in and, and where it came from and your role in, in preserving those, those institutions and, um, how much better we are off than our ancestors. And we want to make sure our children are the same way. But I'll give you a personal one instead. <clears throat> or that's my way of <clears throat> hiding two in, into one <laughs> answer. I, I look back to when uh, I was your age, at least. And I lived in a fog. So I'm going to give you uh, uh, the old man's advice. Uh, <laughs> uh, life is really short, uh, shorter than uh, most young people think it is. And it's more random. So you, you just bat around from thing to thing. I, I was, I called myself in the major of the month club for a long time. I, I've done all sorts of things and, and you never really make a plan. You try, just try lots of things and stick with the ones that work. But, but you got to also, Think about, um, you know, how, how fast life will go by. Uh, you, you get, I, I still feel like I'm 19, but uh, I am 65 and it seems like it went by in a blink of a, of an eyelash. Um, and, but, and most young people don't, don't think forwards. You don't really understand what life is like, but you can. I think it's an, it's unfortunate. It's because we don't really live in village lives anymore. You used to have aunts and uncles and lots of people at all stages in life that you could sort of identify with. And now we kind of live, live alone when, when we're young. So, uh, you know, life will come. Don't, don't waste your twenties goofing around. Uh, your twenties is, is when you build, uh, experiences that turn into careers. Nobody knows what they're going to do, but just, just do things. Um, and, uh, I'll give some, some personal advice too. Um, when, when you're dating, you're looking for the person that, that you can raise kids with, <laughs> uh, marry young, have your kids young, stay married, max out your 401k and stocks and think ahead. That's funny. I was just thinking to myself earlier today, 
You are freaking out about the future for no reason. Life is not that short. I guess maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know. It's kind of interesting because with so many kids, especially my age with anxiety, it's almost like all they can think about is the future. And yet we don't really think about the future at the same time. I don't really know how to make that make sense because I, I guess I'm not a doctor. No, no, I, I think you're onto something. There's, there is this well-documented anxiety and mental health crisis, which is kind of strange. Um, you know, the United States is right now the most prosperous, healthy uh, society that has ever been. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's funny, lots of people don't think about, uh, you know, exactly when am I going to have kids and how, but they do think about, oh, the climate is about to, uh, you know, the, the oceans are about to boil, I think, as, as Al Gore put it, and sort of live in this vague anxiety about about very low probability events, but don't think about their own lives very clearly. I think part of it is also almost like a focus thing. Instead of stressing out about the things that you can't really control, or even if you can, it's it's super duper marginal. It's even more marginal than arguably anything that we talk about with regard to like marginal evaluation. And your life is in your hands. So maybe that is easier to be in control of. I don't know. That's... Yeah. Just my current. Well, thought. Then, oh. yes. Don't don't get too swept up into political causes is a good <laughs> good piece of advice. Uh, as well as you know, worry about things that you can control. That's a good good piece of advice. Anyway, that's my fatherly advice for the uh, beginning of the uh, show. It's much appreciated. And now let's let's turn to inflation, a less fatherly topic, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so we're facing inflation. Seemingly for the first time in a little bit, I feel like. Well, I mean, it's always happening, 2% or something. Uh, (laughs) But as bad as that is, it's kind of lucky for you because you just put a book out on a new way to think about inflation called The Fiscal Theory of the Price Level. Um, And lucky for you, I say, not because you don't face inflation the way the rest of us do, but because economists have thought about inflation in like kind of one way for a while. And they thought that they had conquered it, but that's not really the case. Um, And we're going to get into that. But what started the inflation that we're seeing now? And I guess what is is not necessarily the right question, because there are so many theories about what exactly, but when, I guess. Yeah, um, you mentioned luck, and I I will say I am incredibly lucky. I I was thinking about inflation since about 1980 because uh, I was around the last time we had inflation. Finally got a book on inflation um, submitted to the publisher in March 2021. The introduction said, well, we haven't seen inflation since 1980. No one's going to care about this book, but someday dust it off the shelf. Maybe it'll be useful. And then uh, <laughs> thanks to thanks to various policy missteps, uh, they got exactly what I told them not to do. And hopefully I'll sell some more books. So maybe, yeah, yeah my salary doesn't keep up with inflation just like everyone else's, but I, I hope my book sales will. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, where does inflation come from? I, I think I was also lucky in that, uh, of course, all economists say this is exactly what I predicted all along, but I, I, I feel that way too, I guess. Um, um, the uh in my in my view so my book is the fiscal theory of the price level which we'll we'll get into a little bit but during the pandemic uh our government uh basically printed up 3 trillion dollars of new money and wrote people checks and they borrowed another 2 trillion dollars of money and wrote people more checks 
and with no talk at all about how are we going to pay all this back? Uh, just out of nowhere, they sent people checks. People ran out to spend the money, and uh, guess what? Uh, inflation comes. Um, so I think it's no mis- mystery at all why we had this bout of inflation. Um, there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> and so, how how what is inflation? That's a good thing. I think, a, thank you for asking that, because a lot of the alternative theories and so forth come down to misunderstanding the phenomenon. Uh, inflation is when the price of all things goes up. And I would, although it's not in the measure, I would include um, wages as well. Uh, so, so the common mistake is to say, oh, apple prices are going up. There's apples inflation. Uh, well, if apples are going up relative to bananas, that's a relative price change. And so a lot of this came in the, uh, in, in, you know, there were supply shocks. We can't end up get enough TVs through the ports. So yeah, the price of TVs has to go up relative to wages. We can't afford as many TVs or it has to go up relative to the price of fruit or something. So, but that's a relative price change. The part that's really inflation is the part of all things going up, prices and wages going up together. And that really only can come from, let's call it too much demand, though I hate that word. It's a, it's a decline in the value of the currency and a decline in the value of the government's debts. That's the common component to everything that's inflation. What's confusing, of course, these happen at the same time. And, and that's part of the damage of inflation. Inflation always comes when lots of relative prices are changing and, and, uh, you know, TVs are going up faster than restaurant meals or stuff like that. So that's, that's a lot of the, that, that's the smokescreen in front of the fundamental phenomenon. Um, so how, how is it measured? You mentioned that wages aren't included. Yeah. So the, um, imperfectly. <laughs> yeah. Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, goes out. And tries to put together a basket of all the uh, goods and services that people buy. And they're very detailed. They have people that go out and say, you know, one uh, 16 ounce can of Campbell's tomato soup at this store. What did it cost this month and what did it cost last month? <laughs> and they try to put that all together to figure out what a basket with a basket of goods and services that people buy costs. Now, you can imagine how hard that is because um Two things. First, there's a lot of things like healthcare <laughs> and, uh, uh, that, you know, who knows, who knows where the funny money comes from and, um, things like the value of your, your housing. Uh, you know, what, what's the value of the housing services you have? How do you value the government is now close to half of, of GDP? How do you put a price on all that stuff? And how do you handle new, you know, the new iPhone comes in and it costs, uh, you know, 10% more than the old iPhone. Well, is that inflation or is that, is that actually deflation? Cause it's 20% better. Uh, so it is, it is imperfectly measured, which is, <laughs> I think it's kind of funny when, when people get all upset about, you know, two, 2.1% versus 2.0%. It's measured at best within a percentage point anyway. And especially over long periods of time. Uh, it's so, you know, exactly how much better or worse off are we than we were in the 1970s? Well, you could have three Ford Pintos or you could have you know, one one Tesla. You, you know, is that really the same thing? Uh, hard, very hard to measure. But it is it is the best measure we got. And uh, it's it's pretty good, at least for short run things. And when it's 10 percent versus 2 percent, you know, something very serious is happening. And and 
about 10% is what we have right now, right? I did not look up the latest numbers uh, before coming on the show, but, uh, but, but a, a, recent... good, a good resource for, uh, I'll point you to the source, go to Fred, uh, Google Fred and the St. Louis uh, uh, Federal Reserve has a wonderful website where you can get all the government data you want. But yeah, uh, it's it's down from ten percent. My my memory is dependent. There's core inflation and headline inflation and personal di- different measures, but we're we're now I think in the roughly five percent range. So, I, I guess twenty twenty one COVID, all of that. Um, people, including economists, and and also people at the Fed, seemed kind of confused about the difference between inflation. And the changes in relative prices, the thing you were just talking about, the price of apples versus every single price. Um, Like, how does this idea of transitory inflation play into that? Like, how did it come out of this? And is it a new idea? Is it a super valid idea? Yeah, it it meant more than the, I mean, the English word transitory means it, you know, it comes and goes. And in that sense, all inflation is is transitory. Uh, you know, the great German hyperinflation, well, it, it, it came and then it went. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that they had something more in mind, which is it does, you know, one of the difficulties of, of uh, measuring inflation and, and understanding it is that you often will see um, little spikes in measured inflation that go away. If, if oil prices go up one month, uh, they're likely to come back down again. So you'll see a little blip in measured inflation but you know that's not something that's going to last. I think that's the kind of thing that people had in mind when they talked about transitory. There was a lot of economic upset in the pandemic. So uh, a lot, um, you know, the real meaning I think they had in mind with the transitory stuff was you can't get TVs through the ports. So the price of TVs are going to skyrocket this month, but that price level will be back again. So not just will the inflation go away, but the inflation will reverse itself to deflation and will be back to the prices where they were originally. That was absolutely wrong. Uh, and, um, uh, but it's, you know, it's very difficult in real time that the Fed has a hard problem. Uh, is this just a couple of prices like, you know, a, a shortage of oil that goes up and then comes back down again? Uh, or is this something that's going to spread and become, uh, uh, part of everything? Is it fundamentally supply versus demand? Now here, there's, there's uh, also lots of conceptual, um, errors and conceptual difficulties that went under it. One is we've already mentioned, uh, not understanding relative prices versus the price level. Already in the pandemic, you could see, yeah, the price of TVs was going up, but so was the price of everything else. And so were wages. There was a labor shortage. So you could see it was pretty widespread already. And, uh, inflation since, since Emperor Diocletian's inflation in the sixth century has always brought out all sorts of economic, uh, bogeymen and, and, uh, horror stories. It's the middlemen. It's the speculators. Uh, it's the great, uh, I remember, uh, I think it was Elizabeth Warren went after the great chicken monopoly that was raising prices. So it's, it's greed and, you know, where was this greed before? I don't know, but all of a sudden producers got greedy and raised prices. So, uh, and that's, that's what makes inflation for me so much fun to study. It's not obvious. It's, it's one of those, lots of economics is kind of obvious. The price of apples goes up. Well, uh, either there's a sudden craze that people want to buy apples or there was a there was a frost in the apple harvest. And, you know, it's either supply went down or demand went up pretty understanding. You, you could go out and figure it out. You go out and be, try to be a journalist with inflation. and It's really hard. You, you go to the, you know, the price of bread went up. So you ask the grocery store, why does the price of bread go up? And 
grocery store says, oh, the wholesaler raised the prices. And you go to the wholesaler and the wholesaler says, well, the bakery raised the prices. And the bakery says, well, wheat's going up and, 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 uh, and, uh, you know, water's going up and electricity's going up. So we got to pass that along. You go to the farmer and the farmer says, well, seeds are going up and wages going up. You go round and round in circles and never get anywhere. It's hard to find out that the government printed up too much money and sent people checks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this kind of makes me think about how, when when Europe was really affected at the beginning, and I mean probably still now a bit, by the war in Ukraine with the restraints on oil and gas and stuff like that, it looked like there was inflation because everything was going up. Um, but at the same time, everything changes because of food and energy and the influence they have on everything. Um, and so, I mean, I guess I don't know if you know what that was if it's inflation or if that was just relative due to those prices. But it does seem like a really complicated and kind of compelling area to kind of try to figure out. It is. Um, now, uh, um, energy was energy prices were all up well before the war in Ukraine. Uh, and in fact, uh, Russia was happily selling energy to anybody who wanted it. <laughs> the, the actual supply of energy did not decline uh, with the war in Ukraine. So I, I rate that as largely uh, an excuse. Uh, and politicians don't want to say we, we overdid it with the pandemic stimulus. We're overdoing it with our deficits. It's so much nicer to say, oh, it's all Vladimir Putin's fault. Uh, so there's a lot of excuse making going on. But I think Europe, too, now is is fairly clear. They, too, uh, handed out enormous amounts of money, not quite as much as, as we did during the pandemic. And then, of course, they reacted to higher energy prices and decreased supplies uh, from Russia by printing up money and giving people more money to buy the energy. Well, that's not going to you know, help the inflation a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was in um, France a few months ago and they had like the lights off everywhere, which I didn't think was necessarily a bad thing. It was just a weird sight when like the Eiffel Tower was turned off. And I was like, huh. Well, there is a wonderful story going on in Europe, and I really want to cite uh, my colleague Ben Mall at the uh, London School of Economics, who was, uh, he's German, and he was really, in for when the war started, there was lots of hue and cry about how the economy is going to crater because we won't have any oil and so forth. And and the magic, there's a lot of economic, one of the magic things in economics is substitution. <laughs> The ability of yeah. people to, uh, to, uh, sub, you know, you look at oil and you say, Oh, you know, uh, making something takes three barrels of oil. If we only got two barrels of oil, output will go down by two thirds. Well, it turns out that especially in the short run, you can rearrange things. Uh, well, especially both short and long run, uh, you can rearrange things to make do with a whole lot less oil. And, and, uh, the German economy has come through. Uh, and the French economy much, much better than all of the uh, politicians uh, thought it would because of, of the magic of substitution. And as, now some of it's not fun. Now, one, one of the things Ben pointed out, for example, a fertilizer takes a lot of uh, natural gas to produce. Uh, so what can you do about that? Well, one thing you can do is shut down the domestic fertilizer that, you know, keeps the economy going. It's not necessarily great for Europe, of course, because then now they got to export stuff instead. Uh, but um, you certainly don't have to not have fertilizer in the crops this spring uh, because we have less oil. The, uh, thinking about inflation kind of, or like just generally makes me think of all these questions that I've never really understood. Um, kind of going back to the U.S. Um, so 
the the Fed defines price stability as a two percentage growth in the price level. Why is it not zero? Good question. Uh, the Fed's mandate is price stability. How did we get from price stability to eternal 2% inflation? I'd like to know. I read the clear words of the mandate as price stability, meaning price level is the same. And that, that's not just 0% inflation. That's if there's a unexpected 1% or 2% inflation, we got to squeeze that out and get prices back to where they are. And indeed, when that was written, price stability, we were still under the gold standard, which had kept the price level stable for hundreds of years. Now, it wasn't great. I'm not advocating back to the gold standard. Just the, in, it's clear to me the intent of that was the price level should be stable. And so I'm, I'm actually, I, I think that's an appropriate, not just, I don't want to be legalistic. Oh, let's be an economist. I don't see why we need 2% inflation forever. The excuse for it is, um, it's sort of like the old idea that wearing shoes that are two sizes too small during the day, it feels so much better to take them off at night. Uh, that if, if you have a 2% inflation regularly, then interest rates can be three or 4%. And then the Fed can lower interest rates more to um, stimulate during a recession. Uh, I, I, I won't go too deep into economics. I don't think that really makes much sense anyway. So I don't see why we have to have constant 2% inflation. So right, back, back to zero. I'm with you. Yeah, the shoes thing makes it seem really uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, so... The prevailing theory for all these years was about the cause of inflation was that monetary expansion was the cause of printing the money, I think. So can you explain how this theory works, what it says? Yeah, and uh, I'll explain it by contrast with my favorite, the fiscal theory. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, we both agree if you print $5 trillion and hand it to people in the form of checks, that uh, that's they're going to go out and, and spend that, and there we're, there isn't enough to go around. We're getting inflation. Perfectly sensible. So it's too much money chasing too few goods and services. That's always inflation. The question is, what exactly is money, <laughs> and uh, and how much is too much? Um, now the old uh, the, the monetarists, which is exactly what you're referring to, uh, took that observation, and most of the historical episodes are in fact governments printing money to cover deficits and, and causing inflation. But um, when you say it's too much money, that is too much money uh, relative to uh, other things. So the standard view was uh, you need some money. Money is not a great thing to hold because it doesn't pay interest. But you need some money in your wallet in order to uh, to, to make your transactions. So it was um, the it was the uh, just the special stuff that you hold and to make transactions that counts as the money that causes inflation. And, and in particular, so the prediction there is. Yeah, if we we all agree, print up five trillion bucks, hand it to people, you'll get inflation. But um, suppose you print up five trillion bucks and hand it to people, but at the same time you take back five trillion dollars with the treasury bonds. So you're no wealthier overall. You just have too much money and not enough treasury bonds. Will that make people go out and spend? Well, here's where we diverge. The classic theory says uh, it. Yes, uh, it's only about the amount of thing in the special form called money that matters. It's not about you're having more overall wealth than you thought. It's it's about having too much money and too few bonds. Whether or not we take away the bonds and, and cut your wealth by $5 trillion makes no difference at all. It's just as inflationary. Whereas my view, the fiscal theory view says, you know, money and government debt, they're all kind of like the same thing. 
Uh, and so um, if we print up five trillion bucks of money, but take back five trillion bucks of treasuries, then you wouldn't have the inflation. Uh, you know, if imagine if in the uh, pandemic that there had been no deficit whatsoever, we simply rearranged things. And instead of people holding treasury bills directly, people held money market accounts that had treasury bills. That wouldn't make any I say that wouldn't make any difference. Standard monetarists say it makes a huge difference. So that's really the, the cleavage point between the standard monetary view and, and the fiscal theory view. Is is it money versus bonds? Is it something wrong with the composition of, of the assets you hold? Or is it overall too much government debt of all forms, including money, relative to what you think they're going to pay it back? So then where does your skepticism come from for the monetary theory and I guess, how does the fiscal theory fix or or appease those worries, maybe? So my skepticism is, is it's fun. It's long and deep-rooted. I, I picked it up from my thesis advisor, George Akerlof at Berkeley. I, I went to Berkeley, a uh, convinced monetarist, and, and George really picked it apart from a bunch of ways. One, um, you know, we tell a story. If you've taken an economics class, you probably got told this story of uh, you have to go down to the bank and cash in your uh, your bank account to get money to go spend. And, and anyone your age must look at that and say, cash a check and, and hold. What, what is cash anyway? I, <laughs> I have I have this phone thing is that, that that's what I used to. Is that is that what you're talking about? <laughs> you don't take Apple Pay? <laughs> exactly. What do you mean? Uh, so so that's, you know, it probably was it was a decent theory about 1935, but uh no, so, so that doesn't really hold much anymore. That that's an undermining the lack of the you know the, the basic story about money versus saving as being very different things. Uh, and then the the Fed right now does not control the money supply. So this story requires that um, the Fed can, you know Fed controls the money supply. The Fed doesn't do that. The Fed targets interest rates. So you need a theory that. Um, Record that recognizes that the Fed targets interest rates and all the classic monetary theories. So go, go read Friedman's 1968 presidential address. It's a masterpiece of economics. But you know, one thing he said in there is the Fed can't target interest rates. If you do, things will blow up. Well, the Fed's been targeting interest rates since 1968, and things went a little awry in the 1970s. But you can't say that you know we have Zimbabwean levels uh, of inflation. So. Uh, the evaporation of, of money as a separate asset, I'd say, is influential to me. Uh, the fact that the Fed uh, controls interest rates and we need a theory where the Fed can control interest rates and not money supply, that all drives me to uh, fiscal theory, the price level. Plus, it's really beautiful. <laughs> it's it, I, I, I must admit I'm attracted to, to beauty. It's, it's more Chicago than Chicago, really. It's a, uh, it's a uh, very simple... Uh, clear theory of where inflation comes from. Hmm. So I guess, could you lay it out for us in simple, beautiful terms? Oh, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> what is the fiscal theory? Of the uh, um, it says that inflation comes when there is more government debt. That includes cash, but it also includes treasury bonds um, and bills. More government debt than people think the government uh, can or will repay eventually by uh, uh, charging taxes more than spending. Yes, that that does happen. <laughs> Governments do repay their debts. They don't just keep piling it on. Uh, eventually, they have to. Uh, why is that the case? Because when we all look around and we see, you know, uh, 
Right now, I think most people, bond markets, there's a lot of hot hot air coming out of Washington. But come on, this is a serious country. This is the best country in the world. Really? We're going to have a, a, a an Argentine-style debt crisis? No. Come on. Sooner or later, they'll fix Social Security, Medicare. We'll, we'll go back to, you know, the sound sort of government finances that we've had for hundreds of years. Uh, but when people decide that's not going to happen, that, uh, you know, there will be a default or there will be in the future uh, just printing up money to pay off debts that the government will not pay back its debts. So what do you do about it? Well, you try to get rid of your money and your government debt. You try to buy stocks, bonds, real estate, foreign currencies, whatever you do. And as we try to get rid of that government debt, we price the push the prices of everything else up. So it's real simple. Too much government debt relative to what people think the government will repay over the long run. That causes inflation. Now, it's not so easy as debt and deficits cause inflation because our government can borrow enormous amounts of money if there's a credible plan to pay it off. We, we did that in World War II. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a war. It's going to it's going to it's not going to last forever. We're going to borrow a ton of money. And when the war's over, there's going to be taxes and spending cuts to pay it back. Yep. I'll give you my money on that, Uncle Sam. Uh, but uh, so um, you can have a lot of current de- deficits, but it's tricky part is it's relative to do people expect it to be paid off. And like vice versa, you can have no current debt deficits. But if people lose faith that uh, Washington will eventually pay it off, uh, then they they run away from government bonds uh, today. It, it has a lot of the flavor uh, of a bank run. So, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, we've had this faith. Oh, sooner or later that, you know, the government debt's always sacrosanct. They'll repay government debt. Uh, well, you know, listen to Washington. They're loudly telling you we'd rather default on the debt than cut Social Security one cent. Mm. Uh, that kind of thing could undermine that faith. So anyway, fiscal theory of the price level is overall too much money and government debt. It's all kind of the same thing relative to what people think it, it will pay back in the long run. It's, it's very much like it comes from asset pricing. It, it works the same way as a stock price is the present value of the dividend payments. And, and when people say, huh, this company's not going to make any money, there won't be any dividends. What happens? The stock price goes down. Well, same. When people say, ah, this government's not going to be able to repay its debts, what happens? The price level goes up. It's funny almost how much it has to do with expectations of of consumers, of the people in the system. Um, I, I remember in my intro macro class learning about Milton Friedman and how he was like wagging his finger at all these economists being like, just you wait. This is not how people anticipate inflation and like the development of different theories of how people project themselves and government spending into the future. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like it makes a lot of sense. It almost, I was thinking about this earlier today when I was preparing for this. It's it, you. I watched this video of you where you were talking about how at the Fed, they use all this jargon and you never really know what they're saying because they're kind of trying to cover it up maybe because otherwise it would be a little too obvious what they were doing. Um, and it's almost as though they behave in in parallel or like in accord with this theory without knowing it. Like this is just the natural, That's I guess that's what economics is, is that you're trying to explain the thing that's happening. And by kind of playing around with the words and making it harder to understand, you can't really expect what's going to happen as well. Does this make any sense? This is, uh, this is you're, you're onto a deep set of uh, issues here. Uh, <laughs> let me respond to, to both. Yeah, on the expectations. So 
Uh, you know, I, I wish um, uh, the, the hard, you know, let's, you, you can understand this issue. The, uh, the basic theory is pretty clear. Debt relative to expectations of what um, the government will pay off. Well, where did that come from? Uh, and, uh, you know, I wish I could come up with a separate measurement. You know, what's the expected future uh, primary surpluses that repay debt? But that's very hard to do. And here it's, um, let me make an analogy, though. It's very much like the theory of asset pricing. I'm, I'm sort of like a two-year-old who got a hammer and everything looks like a nail. <laughs> and that hammer is price equals present value of dividends. I, I learned that one finally. And uh, fiscal theory is really just applying that same idea. Now, uh, so I, I want to take you here because there, I think we're more comfortable. Uh, where do the expected dividends come from? Well, you know, we do the best we can. So, and, and you know, the theory does use rational expectations. That doesn't mean clairvoyant. The, it doesn't mean particularly good expectations or good forecasts. It just means people do the best we can. Um, and uh, I think that the nebulousness of it all also helps to understand why um, it's so hard to forecast. And, you know, the Fed, Fed's pretty bad at forecasting inflation. Well, the Fed's also pretty bad at forecasting stock prices because uh, really who knows what's going to happen. So the, it we, we do not require clairvoyance. Now, now here I think, uh, you know, where do people's expectations of the government's ability to repay come from? We're actually on more solid ground than we are with stocks. Uh, you know, where, where does expected dividends from Tesla in 10 years come from? I don't know. Uh, but if you're going to buy stocks, you got to think about that. Um, but really, for government debt, we have hundreds. Uh, I'll go back to my first thing about the wonder of the institutions. We have uh, a wonderful set of legal institutions designed to encourage the government to repay and not to inflate away its debt. So really, it comes from from faith in those institutions that uh, and in the norms of of good behavior and the reputation of the Treasury for repaying its debt and not inflating it away. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing, you know, look, look for lo that loss of faith if you want to look for where inflation comes from. Now, what you said about the Fed is also very uh, so it works like stock prices in, in the same way. So what determines the stock price today? Well, there's the expected dividends next year, which is, you know, 2% of it, and then what the price is going to be next year. <laughs> so that's why uh, a favorite of uh, people who are soon going to spend time in federal penitentiaries is, is to uh, try and convince you the stock price will be higher next year and get you to buy it uh, today. Uh, now, of course, as you as you iterate that forward, well, where's the price next year come from? Well, the dividends and so forth. And that's as you as you unwind that, you get to the view that, oh, fundamentally, the price is due to the whole future dividends, not really next year's price. Inflation works the same way. So if we all know inflation is going to be higher next year, what, what do you do? Well, you run out and buy today, right? If, if I tell you that that new TV is going to cost 20 percent more next year, go buy it now. And if you're a store and you know the price is going to be 20% higher next year, raise the prices now. So expectations of future inflation in the short run have a lot of effect on inflation today. And the Fed kind of knows that. And so that's a lot of the speeches are about uh, trying to convince people that inflation will be low next year so that they won't raise their prices now. But you can tell, like stocks, eventually the fundamentals win out, and, and all these beautiful speeches about anchored expectations have to be anchored by something, and not just by more speeches. Uh, and that's where fundamentally you, you you know you iterate the idea forward, and you go, oh, it's it's in the end, it's really driven by fiscal policy, by by the government's ability to pay back its debt. But I think that accounts for a lot of of the Fed's uh, speechifying is is trying to manage expectations to make their life easier, and and. Uh, 
it's, uh, you know, and that's where we get to the, the rational expectations really just says you can't fool people systematically. You can fool people a couple of times, but sooner or later they catch on and, and stop paying attention to politician speeches. So maybe what I'm hearing is if they were in the private sector, that they would go to jail. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> OK, well, I said that a little bit. They are. Um, they are. They are talking their book, though. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, you know, that's one of the difficulties of the Fed. And it's actually an honest difficulty. You know, how, we, we were we had a Hoover conference a while ago and, and Steve Davis had a brilliant little paper on, on this question. Uh, we were looking at how did the Fed miss 8 percent inflation? How, how could, you know, that's your, your prime thing is inflation and 8% inflation came in. They're still mumbling around about transitory and they're forecasting it to go right back down again. How, how could they get something wrong? There's a lot of conceptual mistakes. Um, you know, some involving, they, they don't pay much attention to supply. Uh, but one of the problems is, you know, if they said, Oh my God, we're forecasting 8% infla- inflation next year. Even that, if that's an honest forecast, of course, the markets would go completely nuts. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they, they, uh, you know, distinguishing uh, the forecast from the the speech of what we'd like to be is very hard for the Fed. Not, yeah, not, it seems like a hard job. Well, part of the hard job too is um, the Fed. To be honest, the Fed both doesn't really know how it works and doesn't have anywhere near as much control over inflation as it would like us to believe, and most people do believe. And that's, you know, that runs hard up against uh, the institutional prerogative in you know, the institutional necessity in Washington these days to look like you completely understand every detail of everything and you're totally in control. But the fact is, and, and you know, th- th- this is also something that is clear in fiscal theory, the Fed has much less limited power to control inflation and the mechanism by which higher interest rates may be lower inflation is much more tenuous then all this technocratic gobbledygook would have you believe. And that is the one thing I know from 40 years of studying this stuff is the limit. I know what everybody else doesn't know. <laughs> I know there mm-hmm. isn't some secret book out there, some secret article where in fact it's all spelled out and they really know how it works. No, sorry, Mr. and Mrs. America. The Fed is a lot less in control than you think, and they understand the mechanism a lot less than than the w- fancy words would make you think. So there are different schools that have thoughts about how to stop inflation. So monetary has to do with the interest rates. Um, how does that differ from the fiscal approach to stopping inflation? Yeah, uh, this is a hard question. And here, I'll, having just given a speech about lack of knowledge, <laughs> I'll give you my mm-hmm. own. Uh, I think through models. Uh, so um, I, I can give you the answer with the best models I know how to write down. Uh, but I recognize the limits of those models. And, you know, I'm still working on better models. Um, but as best I understand the world right now, um, the Fed has a strong influence uh, on inflation. Um, it can uh, raise and lower inflation in the long run, although in the long run, it's hooked up the opposite way. What we know that over very long time periods, uh, higher interest rates go with higher inflation. Venezuela has, you know, 100% interest rates and 100% inflation. It's, it's not the other way around. Uh, but the Fed can control things over the very long run. But there's nothing – if the government runs up and, and spends $5 trillion bucks, throws it out the window, there's going to be inflation, and there's nothing the Fed can do about that. The Fed can kind of control when it happens, but it can't control uh, that that fiscal policy is going to cause inflation. And the Fed can smooth out the path. It can lower inflation now, but by accepting a little more inflation in the future. So it has a short-run ability to move inflation around – 
uh, but it's it's a little more limited in the long run. So that all goes by way of saying, well, let's look back at history uh, with also the importance of fiscal things uh, in the back of our minds. And all the successful ends of inflation have involved jointly monetary policy, fiscal policy, and uh, and microeconomic policy. Um, as long as a government is printing up money to pay its bills, there's going to be inflation. And there's pretty much nothing the central bank can do about that, no matter what it does with interest rates. So you got to get the fiscal policy under control. The, the central bank can stave things off for a while. So Latin American countries often have this. You know, Brazil will have an inflation. The central bank does a whole lot of stuff with interest rates, clamps down, a bit of recession, inflation recedes, but they haven't solved the problem that they, they're not, they're not paying their bills. And then inflation comes right back again. Um, so you, you have to solve the monetary problem, the fiscal, the fiscal problem. Uh, monetary policy has, has to, has to help with that. Um, and the best way to solve the fiscal problem is to let the economy grow. Uh, raising tax rates is like walking up a sand dune, uh, because every time you raise tax rates, you kill the real economy. Uh, so the best way to do it is, is to let the economy grow. And that's actually what happened in the 1980s. The U.S. had, you know, there was a monetary, famous monetary tightening. But there was also a, a social security reform, a deep reform of, um, of fiscal policy. There was a, um, a deregulatory reform. The economy grew like crazy. And the government by the 1990s was raking in money. Uh, so it, it, it all three worked together. So that's, I really, you know, if, if you want, I think here looking at the future is difficult and I may be wrong, but uh, I don't, I, I think we're at the point where, um, a trillion dollar deficits and an unreformed entitlements crisis looming is not something we can ignore and permanently get inflation down uh, into the low stable range again. Do you have a nugget of optimism for us as we close? Uh, yes, uh, two. Uh, uh, one is that <clears throat> um, I work on inflation because it's where I think I know the answers and I find it interesting. But of course, the most important thing in economics is long-run growth. Uh, inflation, recessions, they, they all kind of come and go. It's, it's, it's a pain in the butt. And, uh, uh, you know, the uh, serious inflation, which will be a, like a sovereign debt crisis in the U.S., is, is a pretty awful thing. But uh, long-run growth is, is way more important. I just don't do that because, <clears throat> you know, everybody else who does it is so much smarter than I. <laughs> and I don't really have anything to contribute to it. Uh, and I, you know, I do have faith eventually. Um, I mean, really, is it's the question of are American institutions going to go by the wayside or are they going to hold and be rebuilt? And one of the institutions is that ever since Alexander Hamilton, we, we repay our debts. We don't really let a horrible inflation. We don't let a debt crisis break out. So I, I, I think I, I hope we're away from that and that, you know, the simple kind of reforms that need to be done. Uh, will be done and uh and and we can get back to it but um you know hold on to your pocketbook if not <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to explain this all to me and my listeners and for sharing your wisdom um i have one last question for you well can, can i what let is, me just i want to put in a last plug mm -hmm. uh you yes. know the fiscal theory of the price level book has a lot of equations and it's uh it's it's aimed at fellow economists but if you go to my website johnhcochran.com and find the fiscal theory tab there's some essays in just plain english that explain these ideas without the equations. So I, I hate to be a guy on a book tour saying, don't buy my book, but <laughs> go there and, and take a look, for example, at fiscal histories, which is a, it, it talks about 
how do you use the fiscal theory to understand that? That's a good first uh, first dose of fiscal theory, the price level. Okay, go ahead. Last question. But if you're a mathematician or an economist, check out the book. <laughs> yeah, you have to learn to do fiscal theory of the price level if you're going to be an economist. And for that, you got to do the equations. Uh, economics needs the equations. You just cannot, you, beautiful prose will let you just get confused and, and not tie the ends up correctly. So things that are written in equations aren't necessarily right, but things that can't be written in equations are almost always wrong. That's a good point. One of my econ professors <laughs> said that very thing. And I stopped, I stopped criticizing the equation so much after that. Oh. Yeah, the All fact right. is in economics, we don't have enough math. There's so many things that we talk about. You know, take those Federal Reserve speeches. Most of those just, they're way ahead of the math that we have to, to make it precise. So uh, don't make fun of math and economics. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. What is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Oh, gosh. Do I only get one? <laughs> uh, you can have like two or three okay, if good. you would like. Um, one of my greatest pleasures in my academic life is being proved that I'm wrong. And of course, in academic life, it happens over and over again. But uh, it's, it's a good a good reason to go in academic. There's nothing that I like better than something I've just kind of believed without thinking too much about it. And then someone says to me, John, you're wrong about that and shows me exactly that I'm wrong and, and then changes my outlook on life. That just makes my day. And it, it happens <laughs> pretty frequently. Uh, in, in my professional career, I'll, I'll mention, you know, most of the things I do now, um, when I took my first macro class, my first macro class, uh, I, I thought macro was all BS. It was horrible. Uh, and of course, here I am. Um, I, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I started as a young monetarist until George uh, Akerlof opened my eyes that, that that had to be all wrong. I, I spent a lot of my life as a finance professor, and I, I distinctly remember taking my first finance class and thinking, this is all stupid. Uh, they're just running regressions of one stock return on another stock return. How could you waste your time with that? Um, similarly, uh, you know, in, in macro, uh, I made fun of sticky prices forever in the whole New Keynesian literature until I, I learned about it. And so, so there's a, a lesson there. Don't, um, don't disparage things you don't know about as, as being silly and, until you learn about them. Uh, that's important. And, and, uh, similarly, my, um, sort of larger outlook on life and sort of political orientation, that sort of thing has had, Many times when I just sort of unthinkingly went with what my crowd thought, and then somebody would slap me in the face and wake me up. And I'll say one. Uh, I, I used to be a, just at a, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a university community. I was a standard issue liberal. Um, and I, I bought the line that, oh, we need to, you know, get rid of guns. Guns are terrible. We need to control guns. And then a, uh, a really good friend of mine in graduate school, um, uh, was uh, she's a woman and she lived in uh, in Berkeley on the south side of campus and uh, you know I, I spouted this view and she said John I have a gun I went what I said yeah I, I live in an apartment in a bad neighbor on the south side of campus I'm a woman I live alone if somebody breaks in the cops aren't going to come it's right under my bed now I, I don't know if I don't want to necessarily agree with that or not but it was it was a moment that you know shook me and and uh, made me realize I hadn't thought through this issue. And Maria's got a point. So thank you, Maria. And, and thank you, everybody else who has uh, has uh, enlightened me about uh, something that I hadn't thought about. And, and more deeply, those experiences have enlightened me. Don't don't disparage things. Don't don't go along too easily with the flow. Um, uh, learn, learn about it and uh, 
and uh, only only disparage it after you've learned about it. You're really sure you know what you're talking about. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you.